you return your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. July 22nd of 1962 was a very hopeful day. So that day that uh, the United States was attempting to launch a spacecraft by the name of Mariner 1. See, the years before that, the Americans had been a little slow on things. The Russians had launched the first satellites. They had gotten animals into space and, and all of these type of things. And they'd even launched things and landed them on the moon sent some probes there and, and gotten pictures uh, or attempted to get pictures on the moon. And so the next thing was to try and get uh, spacecraft to the nearby planets. And so the hope was is to be able to launch a spacecraft to, to get to Venus. There were only certain times the, uh, on the calendar that you could actually do it. It was about every two years that it really would uh, be a viable thing to launch. And so it was important that on this date that they would launch the spacecraft. The, the Russians had already launched something to try and get to, to Venus, and now the United States is attempting to do this. Mariner 1 hadn't been without its problems. It had had some difficulties. It was supposed to have launched on July 21st, the day before, but they realized in the process of looking at some things, there were fuses that weren't working properly, and so they changed out the fuses and everything like that. And so they finally got to the day in July 22nd that they were going to launch this. And so they launched it, and everything seemed to be going okay until it got to the second stage where it was going to propel the satellite uh, even further into space, and they began to notice that it was getting off course. And so they sent some correcting commands, but nothing seemed to change. In fact, it got dangerously to the point where it was going to endanger shipping when things came down and the like. And so the engineer that was there in charge of everything had to make a decision uh, to destroy the rocket and of course when anything like that happens there weren't any passengers on that but uh, when things like that happen immediately investigations take place into why uh, certain things happened it took them about five days but they went through and researched what they could and figured out what the you know where the the problem might have been and they began to look at the computer language behind it and they realized that there was a very small problem with one of the letters that was typed in. Uh, it should have been what we might think of it this way as an R with a hyphen over the top of it. It's known as an R bar is what I guess in the computer language, but it's an, an R that has a, a line above it. And the problem was, is when it was entered, it was only entered as an R, not with the hyphen. One person making comment about this said it was the most uh, expensive hyphen uh, in human history because it cost them hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, the lost equipment and time and everything else that went into this, but it was all due to something that you would consider small and insignificant, but it had, well, expensive consequences. And so what you have in Genesis chapter 3 is something that some might think is small and insignificant the eating of a fruit. 
Okay, really, does that have any great import in human history, the eating of a fruit? The problem was is that this fruit and the eating of it was not a small thing because the consequences, well, we might put it this way, have been ongoing and will continue throughout eternity. What we're going to look at here in this passage is what you might just simply say is the wages of sin. Okay, what were the consequences of mankind's sin? Adam and Eve, when they ate of this fruit in the Garden of Eden that they were told not to eat of, they listened to Satan's suggestions perhaps about God's character, that God might not be good and he might not be just and he might not be holy. And then with Satan appealing through uh, this tree, the beauty of it, and uh, appealed uh, through all of this to uh, Eve's uh, character, and appealed to her to go beyond what God had said, she did that. And as a result of it, set all the course of humanity in a direction that we all continue to suffer under. And hopefully when we get to the end of this, as we look at this section, that we can at least say this, okay? The theme, if we were just to give it this, is this, this, that man's sin brought consequences that only God could solve. Man's sin brought consequences that only God could solve. Last week we looked at all the details of the actual sin itself, but here you come in and we start in verse number 7 and you have this statement that's there that the eyes of them were both opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And we'll talk about what's going on there as far as their response to sin. But what we want to look at is just simply God's investigation of this incident. Much like you had this rocket that exploded. There was an investigation to figure out what, what's gone on here and to figure out exactly what had gone on. What you have in verses 8 through 13 is God investigating. Like any good judge. Okay? You want your judges to be fair. You want your judges to be just. And what you see in the story is God being just. He's being fair. And what he does is that he comes, and it says that he comes in the cool of the evening. It would have been in the, the, the wind of the evening. The breeze of the evening is really uh, what it would have been, the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. In verse number 9, here you have the Lord asking a series of questions. I mean, if you want answers, what do you do? You ask questions. And so he comes and he asks questions in verse number nine. The Lord God called unto Adam and said, where art thou? Now, understand, God's not up there going, oh, I've lost them again. Okay, but what he's doing is that he is getting, well, admittance to something. Okay, Parents, you have children that do things, and it's not that you don't know what they've just done, but what you ask them is, what did you do? What, what are you hoping? You're hoping to get a statement from them, perhaps, perhaps acknowledging their own sinfulness. Uh, you have this uh, throughout uh, courts. They will ask questions in order to get people to make statements. So it is, the Lord is asking not for his own information, but just simply confirmation for him out of the mouth of Adam. He goes, where art thou? Verse 10, uh, Adam responds, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
you know, I'm in the garden, I'm still here, and I, I kind of was trying to hide because I knew you were coming, and that's, that's where I've been. God asked the question he really wants to ask. Verse 11, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Did you, did you eat of the tree that you weren't supposed to? Now, I just want us to go on because he does the same thing. What he does as far as inquiring and asking questions of, Eve, or of Adam, he asks of Eve. Look at verse number 13. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? I mean, as a good judge, he is trying to define from these people's own mouth their own statement what they have done. And so what you see is the good questioning here, but the problem is he does get the people here, Adam and Eve, to respond with an answer that admits their own sin, but you have something that comes up that is new in human life. And you go, what's that? Excuses. Excuses for why we've done wrong. Not that we've just merely done wrong, but we now have to well make our sin not look so bad it's not really as bad as you think or it's not really our fault so you can't really truly blame us for this one has put it this way that it would be quite humorous uh to hear these excuses if the situation hadn't had such great consequences i mean adam's response is this in verse number 11 or verse number 12 when he's responding to this question, did thou eat of this fruit? A man said, the woman thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Well, God's got his answer. He did eat. But what's his excuse? Well, God, it's kind of your fault. Why is it God's fault? Well, because you gave me this wife and she gave me this fruit. It's kind of her fault. She made me kind of do this. I did eat, but it's kind of her fault. You look at the woman when she's confronted, verse number 13. He says, what is thou, this that thou hast done? The woman said, the serpent beguiled me. The serpent deceived me, and I did eat. It's not really my fault. It's the snake that's there. That snake did this to me. It's not really all my fault. And so what you find right from the beginning is that God is just. He is finding out the answers, whether or not someone's done this. He doesn't act on a whim or anything like this. God is confirming whether or not certain things need to be handed out. But man's response when it comes to sin and that type of thing is to excuse, to shade it, to try and make it not so bad. And even their excuses, even though they're excuses, it doesn't, well, get away from the responsibility that they had. They still did it. You know, you can't have the excuse that the old comedian had uh, years ago, that the devil made me do it. No, we are judged and we are going to be judged someday on the basis of what we have done. In fact, as you look at the scriptures at the end of time, that mankind is going to at the great white throne judgment to be judged on their what? On their works. 
And so it is, you can't blame anybody else. It's not so you're a victim of circumstances or these type of things, but you find the response that we oftentimes have when we're caught in sin. We may admit it, but then we kind of go, well, it's not really all that bad because such and such and such and such. But that's not going to get us out of the consequences. And so it is for Adam and Eve as God comes along here and he has this investigation. He has all that he needs. Now, remember as these excuses are going on, you just go through and mark how many times it's I, 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 I. It's all about me protecting self. God does his investigation here and what you have in the rest of the story is sin's consequences. Okay, what are the consequences of sin? You know, well, the wages of sin is death. Okay, I understand that. But what are the consequences that you see in this passage that we are still having go on today and uh, will have it until the Lord comes back? What are the consequences? And I'm going to put it this way. What sin consequences, first of all, and I'm going to alliterate this to make it slightly easier for you to remember here. The first thing that sin does is it brings disgrace. You say, what do you mean by disgrace? Well, we have to go back to verse number seven. As soon as mankind sins, the very first response, it's kind of odd for us, but their very first response is this, is to know this, that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now, what is so important about these eyes being opened? Well, they were told that if they ate of this fruit, they would understand certain things. The knowledge of good and evil, that they would be like God, that they would improve in their knowledge of certain things, of good and evil. The problem is, is they experienced good and evil, and in their experience of a good and evil, they now recognize things that they had never paid attention to. In this case, that they were naked, but it's not so much this. It's the idea now that when you have this term naked used throughout the scripture, it describes a person who is defenseless, weak, humiliated, or ashamed. Here they now realize they've done something to bring them shame. I mean, this is not the case most time when a person sins, there is what we would put a sense of shame or guilt. Now, the problem is, is that there are people who have sinned so much that they have no shame. But here you have the response and understanding, we've done something wrong and we have reason to be ashamed. And do you realize that shame is not a bad thing? You realize that sometimes shame is what keeps us from sin, realizing the consequences that might happen. That is a, not a horrible thing, but it is a consequence of sin that we have shame over our sin, a sense of guilt, a sense of what can I do to take care of this? You say, what does mankind do? Well, they do something very silly. They basically come up with loincloths made out of fig leaves. As if that's really covering anything. But they come up with this, and it's their attempt from a human standpoint. What can we do to kind of hide that we feel like we're, we're, we're naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, as Hebrews 4 talks. They try and cover themselves, hide themselves. 
I will say this, that there is a theology uh, to be said about this when you have a culture that has no shame about sin. Uh, They don't normally wear a whole lot of clothes. There is a theology behind this. You you wear clothes uh, as a, you say what? As a acknowledgement of your own shame, sinfulness. And as you look at this, you have these individuals that right from the start are trying to hide themselves and try and, as you see, they're hiding in the garden, whatever. There's a sense of shame. And when you sin, that's where this sense of shame and guilt comes from. It's because you know the difference between good and evil and you've done what you shouldn't have done. And now there's a sense of shame. Or we might put it this way, disgrace. So mankind now, every time they sin, has not the, well, the sense of good and the feeling that they've had in relationship with God. Now they've got shame and are trying to run from God. But secondly, you see this, that there's difficulty. There's two things that are going to be difficult for man and woman as a result of sin. You see, for the Lord, as he comes to the woman... And he says in verse number 16, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Now, this is not to say that she's going to have children as the result of sin. Okay, some people, you know, think, well, we didn't have children until sin happened, and now, you know, they're going to be a pain. And you're going, that's not... That's not a correct understanding because when the Lord told mankind that he was to rule over the whole earth, the expectation is that he was going to have children and the children were going to help rule over the whole face of the earth and be able to do that. And this is where you get these commands of replenishing the face of the earth, that there are going to be human beings all over the world. But what it says here is this, is that there is now going to be pain in the thing that would bring the greatest joy the having of children that would be the delight of seeing someone's life started and being a part of all of this and all of this but there's going to be pain and sorrow in this and then as you look at this in the childbirth the raising of children there is going to be much sorrow There's not going to be all the joy that you would hope to have happen when it comes to the raising of children. There's going to be sorrow in, well, the birth of that child physically, but even in the sense of emotional sorrow that's going to take place, what should have brought joy is going to now be difficult in the birthing of these children, and it's going to bring sorrow, difficulty in childbirth for the the woman. But you also find for the man there's going to be difficulty in work. Look down in verse number 17. Now it said to Adam, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree. Now, just mark all the times you see the word eat in here, okay? As a result of your your eating, okay? Uh, Thou hast eaten of the tree, which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of uh, the field. And in the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return to the ground. See, the very thing that they, Adam did, he's, he was eating something he shouldn't have. What's God going to do? He's going to make it difficult for mankind to get food. 
It's going to cost him work now and effort. There are going to be things as he is here and the going there and working on the ground, there's going to be stuff that now comes forth that has no use. Okay, weeds and thistles, what are they good for? Nothing. They don't provide fruit. They don't even provide really warmth if you want to use them to burning. They are a hindrance and a hurt as you work in the field. And what mankind now finds is that work is going to become difficult. I have to put this in and remind you of what we said in Genesis chapter 2. Adam already had work. He had the perfect profession, and it was this, to take care, to keep, and to serve the garden. You take care of the garden. That's your responsibility. Don't think this, that work is the result of sin. God created us to work and to do things. That that was a part of what he had made us like because God works, and we're supposed to reflect a God who works because we're the image of God. But what happens now is that work becomes difficult. It doesn't go the way that you want. In fact, it seems to be toil. It's not at times enjoyable. In fact, it's just merely a burden. And work's going to be like this until the day you die. You think you've got all the problems solved, and there's going to be another one that crops up. And another problem that crops up. And another problem that crops up. Work was never intended to have all these problems, but as the result of man's sin uh, and listening to his wife and eating of this fruit, the work that he would do to reflect the image of God here on earth is going to be difficult. And so you have this disgrace, a difficulty in childbirth, difficulty in work, and then what you're going to find is that there's going to be a distance. Say, what do you mean distance? A distance in relationships. You see in the statement made to the woman in verse number 16, the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply his sorrow and thy conception, and thy sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. You know, what's being said by that statement? Well, uh, one has put it this way, the helper becomes a hindrance. The husband who's supposed to help the wife and the wife is supposed to help the husband. They become hindrances and sometimes difficult for one another. The woman is going to be frustrated at times because of their husband and, and would, like Eve, uh, try and sub or, excuse me, uh, take over the leadership and lead out. She let out Adam in giving him the fruit. It should have been Adam leading out, and he doesn't. What you're going to have here is that the woman's going to desire to rule over man. And uh, the idea is this, is the woman at her worst would be a nemesis to the man, and what's going to happen is that the man at his worst is going to dominate the woman. What's going to happen is that this relationship that should have been close, uh, as you think about that passage where it says the two shall become one, this is what the intent was, what you're going to find in marriage is that that is going to become very difficult, that unity is going to be continually broken. The wife dissatisfied with the leadership of the husband, the husband not leading as he should, and this conflict that's going to take place where relationships should have been easy, now they've become difficult as the result of sin. And so you have a distance that's now going to come between the relationship that should be the closest, the most beneficial, the one that's helpful. That ought to be the case. But I will say this, that 
there is a distance that is worse in a relationship, and there's a distance between man and woman and God. I mean, you can see it in all these details as uh, you read through the story that God is uh, not happy with what goes on here and and the like, but you do see at the end of the story a separation that indicates there's a break in the fellowship that is there. You go to the end of the story and you find the hiss. In verse number 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take of the tree of life and eat uh, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. He drove out man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. You go, what's going on here? What you have is this, is this place where mankind was able to fellowship with God in the cool of the evening is suddenly closed. The approach to God is no longer available. And you say, what's this thing with the cherubims and the sword that goes every which way? It seems like uh, this bright sword. What's that? Well, think about what you have later on in Israel's culture. In fact, them reading this, they would suddenly become going, in their own mind, go, wait a second, I've seen cherubim before. You say, where would they have seen cherubim? Well, as you talk about the tabernacle that the nation of Israel built, you had a place where the priest could go to do a work, but then there was a veil there, and in the veil there were cherubim facing east that blocked the way into the holy of holies where God was at. You get later on in in Israel's culture, you're going to find they build a temple. And in that temple, you have these cherubim that are created and they're covered in gold. But what are they doing? They're blocking the way into the presence of God. And even in the Ark of the Covenant, where the mercy seat was at, here you have this cherubim, which mark the fact that it is difficult to get into the presence of God. In fact, you're not allowed to come there. What mankind had to be able to fellowship with God, that fellowship has now become difficult. And it's not because of God, it's because mankind's sins separate them from God. The fellowship that they had, no longer the hair. I mean, that really is the whole whole issue that the rest of the Scripture is going to go on is this, is that mankind is separated from God, and God's going to work the way back for mankind to have fellowship with Him, to be able to be with Him forever, to be in His presence. But mankind at this point, what you find is the consequence of sin is there's now a distance in relationship, their relationship with God. All the relationships have fallen apart, including the one that's most important, of eternal importance, and that is mankind's relationship to God. With that distance comes the last of the consequences, but is the one that you commonly associate with this, is that consequence of sin, or we might say the wage of sin, is what? Death. Death ultimately, as you think about it, is a separation, but really what's emphasized in this passage is the fact that mankind as body and soul and spirit is going to be separated. 
that mankind's body is eventually going to be swallowed back from the ground back uh, into the ground one has made this comment here mankind ate fruit uh, of the tree that came out of the ground but eventually what happened is this is that mankind's going to be swallowed by the ground again mankind is not and you think about this mankind was created to live forever the body that they had was designed to live forever and i brought this up to you most of you understand this because in your mind and in your soul you think you're still young does this not happen in your own thinking that you're going why is that the case because god created your body to live forever And when mankind sinned, something unnatural happened. What God hadn't intended, you now have the process of dying where our body is not going to live forever. It's going to cease to exist. Death happens. The wages of sin is death. It will ultimately bring about our death. But as you look at this story in it you aren't left without hope i mean if you read right here and you stop right here you might say this as one has said whereas adam and eve had life at one time they now will have death where they had pleasure now they will have pain where abundance now meager sustenance by toil where perfect harmony with god and with each other now alienation and conflict This is what's happened as the result of sin. But you see in this story that God doesn't want to keep it this way. That God's not okay with us facing all of our consequences. He has to give us the consequences because that's part of the punishment. But He wants to do something to solve that. And in the midst of the story, there is a statement that is made that is one that gives hope right from the beginning of our Scripture. And it's found in Genesis 3 and verse number 15. And it's what we might put this way, God's intervention, God's uh, stepping into man's condition here, uh, is that there is a promise of a seed. Verse 15 god has been speaking to the serpent okay and to the serpent he said you're going to from now on you're going to eat the dust of the earth you're going to go about on your belly which indicates the fact that the the snake uh, before that may have walked or been upright we don't know but whatever the case is now as you look at snakes they slither around, along the ground eating dust but that's verse 14 but verse 15 the lord's no longer talking about a snake as far as what we would consider as an animal he's talking to the serpent behind it the satan that's behind this and verse number 15 you have this statement this is god speaking and i will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel what you have here is what some call the proto-evangelium which means simply this the first gospel the first good news because mankind in the midst of all that they've done wrong here suddenly has something where god says there's hope there's a possibility of salvation that's here and it's between as you look at this that 
it's going to be between Satan and the woman and between her seed, thy seed, Satan's seed, and her seed. You're going, okay, so what is this whole term when it refers to the woman's seed? Well, uh, a seed is a very broad term, and it can refer to someone who's an immediate descendant. As you get along here, the uh, story, you're going to find Eve has a son by the name of Cain. He would be the seed of the woman. Or you could have uh, someone who's a distant offspring, someone generations beyond, that they're of the seed of David. When we talk about Jesus and he's the seed of David, he's generations beyond where David was at. Or you could talk to a, about a large group of descendants. Okay? A whole nation of people could be referred to as the seed of an individual. And in this, you have a play on this. First of all, what Eve is going to have is that she's going to have children. And these children are going to be ones that don't get along with the seed of the serpent. Okay? And uh, somebody goes, well, who's the seed of the serpent? Well, understand this. We're not talking about the serpent's going to have little snakes. Nor are we talking about the fact that Satan is going to have offspring, children, because angels don't have children. We have that confirmation from the Lord where he talks about the angels in heaven who are uh, neither married or given in marriage. Okay? They don't have offspring. There's all the angels you're ever going to have. There's no such thing as baby angels. Okay? Sorry. So it's not talking about the fact that the devil's going to have offspring of more demons. No, what it's talking about is simply this, is that there are going to be individuals in the human race that are going to be like their father, the devil. There's going to be a group of people throughout the history of mankind that are going to be like the devil and the followers of him. Say, how do you know that? Well, the Lord stated this. The Lord in John chapter 8 is confronted with individuals that refuse to believe that he's the son of God, that the religious leaders of the day, uh, the ones that you would figure would be in the right with God. And what he says to them, because they're denying the fact that he is uh, from God and that he was from the beginning, he says this to them, ye are of your father, the devil, and of the lust of your father, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, abode not in the truth, wherefore there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. I mean, here's one, Satan, from the beginning of time that has been propounding the lie of this, that you can be like the Most High God. He thought that, he fell, and he's been propounding that lie from generation to generation, and he's been promoting that, and do you know what? There are people who believe that. They live their lives without God. They live their lives for themselves. They live as if they are God. And you say, well, what does that make them? They make them it makes them like their father, the devil. They're doing his work. And what you're going to find in the story of Genesis as we go through here, <clears throat> you're going to have two lines going through. People who have faith in God and are following God and pursuing after God and looking to Him. And then you have a group of people who have completely abandoned God or don't do what He says or don't care to do what He says. I mean, this conflict is going to start right at the beginning when you have Cain and you're going, well, he's the first son, he's the woman's seed. Well, guess what? He's going to kill his brother. And his line uh, that follows after him are ones who are out for destroying of people and beating people up and they are out for violence. 
You see it in the last of his line, a man by the name of Lamech who is boasting about the, the uh, abuse that he does to someone who offends him. And he's writing poetry about it. And so what you're going to have is this conflict that's going to go throughout history of two groups of people. People who are ones who are following after God, which you say, was Eve one who followed after God? Yes. Uh, and then you have one, ones who follow after what the devil is propounding as the lie. And you have these two groups that will be in conflict throughout human history. They're not really going to get along. There's going to be enmity between them. There's going to be a battle that takes place between them. But the Lord goes beyond that and just he doesn't just simply say there's going to be a conflict between two lines and two groups of people. I am going to send someone who is the seed. The answer. Okay? And the answer, the way that he describes it this way, okay? There's going to be enmity between thy seed and her seed. And it really in this way, it says, it shall bruise thy head, but you could put it this way. He shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And you're going, he shall bruise. And the idea there is not bruising. It's the idea of crushing. Someone's going to come along and crush you. Though in the process, you are going to crush his heel. Now think about this crushing someone's head is an ending thing okay if you were to be run over and your head was crushed that would be the end of you but if you get run over on your heel you're probably going to live so it is here what you have is a hinting at and we can almost look back as you know some would say a monday morning quarterback you can look back because we got the new testament and everything else and realize what we're talking about here is that satan at the cross was crushed by the work of god that in fact on the cross that you find this to be a place of triumph as colossians talks about where you have satan and all of his plans and all of what he's done defeated by the work of jesus christ on the cross that what satan had set in motion and it looked like it couldn't be taken care of suddenly the sun comes along and crushes satan now, granted, Satan's work doesn't stop right there at the cross. He's still, until this day, doing work. But there is a day that's coming where he is not going to be able to avoid the fact of being cast into the lake of fire forever, along with his angels. Jesus, though, is going to suffer. And it is ironic when you think about this, that Jesus is going to have his heel, what? Pierced on the cross. And he's also, as you think about this story, going to wear a crown of, what, thorns? Which is a picture of mankind's sin and the toil that they had. He's going to carry it on his brow and carry that to the cross with him. But he is going to suffer and it's going to be temporary. It's not a permanent defeat. It looked like for a second uh, of time in human history that Christ had been defeated when he was put into the grave. But no, no. When he rises from that tomb, Satan's fate was sealed and that he was going to be ultimately crushed or destroyed. And so what you find in this story, though I don't think Adam and Eve understand the whole thing, 
They at least have some faith in what God is saying here. You go, they do. You may have missed this little detail. It's just kind of one that you kind of pass over. But in verse 21, what does Adam do in the midst of the story? All this is going on, and you've had this go on. And what Adam says is this, unto Adam also, excuse me, back up here, wrong verse. Verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Okay, now think about this. There's no children here yet, whatever but he calls her Eve, which means life. You know what he's, what he's already taking by faith? He's taking the statement of God that the woman's going to have a seed, that she's going to have children, and that the this, this seed is going to accomplish something, and so he names her Eve. This is an act of faith in the midst of all of this. He believes God and what he said, and so he applies what he believes to his wife and says, okay, you're Eve, you're the mother of all living. You're the mother that is going to give life. And so in the midst of this, he calls his wife living, the mother of all life. And it's right after this that you have this event that takes place in verse 21. Here Adam has faith in what God says, and you have a picture that takes place in verse 21 of what happens at salvation. See, Adam and Eve had tried to make these aprons that didn't cover anything out of fig leaves, but you go look at verse 21, and it says this, uh, And Adam, and also to his wife, did God, the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them. It gives them a tunic, a full robe as we would talk about. Now you think about that, and it does not bring this up. You have your first, first death take place in all of the universe. Animals had to die to give them the coverings of skin. But the animal died in order that the shame and the sin could be covered. That Adam and Eve didn't have to be ashamed that they were naked. No, now you have this animal that has died and that its blood has been shed. And in this process, they're given something to wear that clothes them. And it's given to them by God. And you go, well, what is that a picture of? Well, think about what salvation is. We're individuals who are sinful. We can do nothing about our sin. In fact, our efforts at covering our sin are silly, are foolish, like Adam and Eve attempted. But what you have when you have the death of something and blood is shed, you have one who is going to be, as John is proclaiming to people, behold the Lamb of God, which what? taketh away the sins of the world. He takes away the, the shame of that sin. He can take that away and bring forgiveness to an individual. But you go, well, how did it happen? It was because a lamb died, his blood was shed, and what we're given is a robe of righteousness that is not our own. In fact, as you look at what heaven is like in Revelation chapter 7, it talks about individuals that are there and they are clothed in white robes. 
Okay? They don't go back to the garden state where they're naked. No, they're clothed. And you say, why is that? Because it's an eternal reminder that it's not a righteousness of their own that they're there. No, they're clothed in someone else's righteousness. Robes of righteousness uh, that are there. You can find stories throughout the Scripture and even the parables of Jesus uh, as he talks about the fact of individuals even coming to a wedding feast and not being clothed in the garments that have been given by the King. So it is that as you look at this story in the midst of it, when mankind has its greatest failure, there are hints of hope that there is a salvation coming that will pay for the consequences of mankind's sin. And you say, well, what do I have to do? What is necessary for me to, to have what the Savior is, or what God has given through the Savior? I was thinking as I was planning through preaching and, and uh, knowing that September 11th was coming, I thought about maybe preaching a sermon based on September 11th and whatever. And I, I thought about that, but I also thought about this. There's a passage in Luke chapter 13 where the Lord has people coming to him, telling him all the bad things that have happened. Okay, hey, people went into the temple and when they were there, suddenly Pilate uh, had his soldiers fall upon them and they were killed in the temple. Isn't that horrible? And the Lord tells them a story. Well, haven't you heard about the fact that people were walking down a street and they had a construction project going on by the pool of uh, Solomon there? And what happened was this, is that the wall fell on them and 13 people died. But do you know what? The Lord didn't spend his time on that. You know what his statement was? To hearing events like that and hearing about things like that, he made this statement, unless you, like, unless you repent, ye shall all likewise what? Perish. He's saying the things that you can learn from this and learn from examples like this that suddenly life is short and these things could die, well, you need to prepare to meet your God. You need to repent of your sins. Acknowledge your sins and as you're going to find later on as the Lord teaches, or teaches his disciples and has this throughout the Gospels and the New Testament, that you repent of your sins and you look to a Savior. We all are all descendants of Adam and Eve. We're all sinners, Romans 5 tells us without question. We're children of sinners upon sinners upon sinners. And we are sinners by birth. And you might say, well, it's hopeless for us. No, it's not. God from the beginning has already said, I'm going to give a solution if you're willing to look and live. I'm going to give it to you. And it's going to be found in someone who's the seed of the woman who's going to crush Satan's head. Well, that one was Jesus. He died on the cross to give life eternal. He shed his blood as the Lamb of God and you can have salvation. And you say, why do I need salvation? Because I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And I have to admit that and then go to the Savior and what you're going to have is a solution for your sins that's not of your own crafting like Adam and Eve's little fig leaves, but a garment of righteousness provided by God himself. Salvation through his Son. And so if you don't know Christ today, you have no hope for your sins being taken care of. What we've talked about, the consequences of sin here, you're going to... And have that as your full wage. 
But if you know Christ as Savior, though we may suffer some of these things in this life, we're not ultimately in the end going to be separated from God forever. No, you're going to be able to fellowship with Him like He intended for us in a place called paradise. We talked about that last week, that here we have paradise and mankind loses paradise, but what God has created is a place that is paradise for us to be with Him forever and not just merely enjoy all the neat things that are there, but to be with Him. And He delights in having fellowship with us and has made a way possible and has planned from this from the beginning. Are you willing to accept His plan through His Son, Jesus Christ, to be able to fellowship with Him forever? Lord, we're all sinners problem is is that we have a hard time admitting that it's really mankind's problem is that they're not willing to admit sin they want to shade it or excuse it or call it something else but uh, when looking at your word and how you describe it we realize we've offended you we've gone our own way we've done our own thing we've wandered like sheep lord we recognize that but lord we're thankful for the fact that you save sinners that we have a room here filled with a number of people who are sinners that are saved by grace not works of their own but what your son has provided on the cross lord we're thankful for that but lord there may be one here today that has come in here thinking they're okay sin's no problem may they recognize the consequences of their sin will send them to an eternity separated from you in a place called hell but that's not what you want for them you sent your son to give them the hope of salvation the possibility of it may they today cast themselves upon christ your plan from the beginning to save sinners just like us so work in the souls of individuals like that that they may come to christ lord we thank you for your salvation we're not worthy, but we're thankful and we praise you. You're worthy of our praise for creating us, but also giving us salvation. In your son's name we pray. Amen.